Cause you had a bad day You had a bad day We've been in the series for the past couple of weeks uh, that we called Bad Days in the book of Job. Now, what people usually know about the book of Job is that Job is this book where some righteous guy has bad things happen to him. And then he maintains his faith, his, he maintains his faith in the face of the opposition from some accusatory friends. And then at the end of the book, God rewards him by giving him all his possessions back. And that's basically the gist of the story that we get. But of course, if you've been here over the last couple of weeks, you know that the story is a lot more nuanced than that. In particular, you know that at the beginning of the story, we find out that yes, Job is a blameless individual. Then quickly after that, we find out that the reason he's having his suffering is not just coincidence or accident or even Satan. The reason he's having his suffering is that God said okay to it. In fact, Job begins to accuse God of being the cause of his suffering, and that's the main reason his friends get upset with him. And so the friends begin to argue with Job, and they say, Job, this is really all your fault. And Job says, no, 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 I'm blameless, it's God's fault. And they paint a picture of God throughout this story. So by way of review, let me give you what the picture of God is that is being painted by these two groups of people. So Job is painting a picture of God that God is unfair, but at least he's a God who knows how to redeem. And so he might be able to take this bad situation that I'm in and redeem it. But on the other hand, the friends paint the picture that God is transactional. Now let me explain what that means. Transactional, just to use a word that is in more common uh, use today, transactional means quid pro quo, okay? Transactional means you scratch my back and I scratch yours. Transactional means you do something for me, I do something for you. And the friends of Job are trying to say God is a transactional God. If you do good things, God rewards you with good things. And if you do bad things, God punishes you with bad things. And the friends are trying to say this stuff. And what's hard for us is that we want to believe it. Because the promises that they make seem so attractive. They say things to Job like, Job, all you need to do is confess your sin to God and he's going to restore favor to you and bless you again. And we read that and we're like, okay, I want to put that on the wall of my house. Just pray this prayer and get the blessings. I want to do that. You know, I want to read the friends and what they say, and I want to believe it. I want to live by it. The problem is God says they're wrong. In fact, in chapter 42, verse 7, God speaks, and he says these words. The Lord says to Eliphaz the Temanite, one of the three friends, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. The friends have said God gives good people good things and bad things to bad people. And Job says, nuh-uh, God's unfair. I don't deserve any of this, and God is judging me. In fact, this is what Job says in chapter 19, the strongest statement about that. He says, know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. God is treating me unfairly. He is doing something to me that I don't deserve. And Job says, that's wrong. 
The weird part is that God had said the friends were wrong and Job was right. Here is the part of the book of Job that we often gloss over. God claims responsibility for all the hardships. God claims not knowledge. Hear me. God claims responsibility for these things. And that leaves us with the question, can I believe in a God who's responsible for human suffering? Listen, I talk to a lot of people who aren't believers, and one of the things that we end up getting into conversations with is often this question or this phrase, which is usually just kind of a taunt, I can't believe in a God who would allow those people to suffer. I can't believe in a God who would let that bad thing happen in the world. I can't believe in a God who would let my friend suffer or my grandmother pass away or something along those lines. I can't believe in a God who blank. And then they fill in the blank with something that they don't like about the world. And then they blame God for it. And they say, I can't believe in a God like that. And my question too is, can you believe in a God who doesn't just allow these things to happen? Can you believe in a God who is responsible for making these things happen? Can you do that? Now, let's just be honest with each other. Because for me, I can't believe in a God who's not responsible for these things. Let me explain. See, if God is not responsible for human suffering, and yet human suffering happens, and God is not responsible for it, well, then someone else is responsible for it, and that other person is stronger than God. Because God, if he is not responsible for the thing, then he must be weak and can't stop that other thing from happening. Or, or maybe God is not responsible for the thing that happened. He's not responsible for the human suffering. And it's because he didn't know about it. It's because it just sort of happened. It took him off guard. It, it surprised him. And when he found out about it, then he did something about it. You know, when we spent all that time praying and we got everybody together and we, you know, really convinced God that he needed to pay attention to this situation, then he paid attention to the situation and then he noticed it and then he acted because he just wasn't paying attention before. Well, see, the one God is too weak. This God is ignorant. What about the God who is actually responsible for it, but he tells you he's not? Well, that's the God who's lying. Do you want to believe in a God who's not responsible for human suffering? My claim is the only kind of God possible to believe in is the one who is responsible. But there's a problem. And the one problem is that I have a perspective on what human suffering is that I carry with me into the statement. See, I think... The better way to think about this is that God is responsible for everything I think is bad, but he knows better. God is actually responsible for everything that I think is bad, but he knows better. Listen, this is a foundational principle for all human suffering, and this is the principle that we learn today, not from Job and not from Job's three friends. 
We learn it from a challenger, a guy who shows up at the end of all of the debate. He just pops into the middle of the conversation. He yells at everybody for like six chapters, and then he, cl- he clams up. He doesn't say anything more. His name is Elihu. And as I told you at the beginning of the series, you need to be careful who you trust in the book of Job. Because I already told you, Job's friends are saying the wrong thing. Job is saying the right thing. But what Job says is also a little bit aggressive. And we need to have some sort of perspective on what it means that Job is saying the right thing. And so I asked you at the beginning of the series to take this whole book with a grain of salt. Pay attention to who you're listening to. And so here, at this point, before we can talk about what Elihu says, I have to ask you the question, should we trust him? Should we trust this next guy who's going to be talking? Well, I'll give you three reasons why I think you should. And this has been a challenge for me in all my life because I've wondered, is Elihu telling me the right thing or the wrong thing? And the reason I have a dilemma about this is that God never mentions Elihu at the end of the book. He talks about Job, he talks about the three friends, but he doesn't say anything about Elihu. And so, here's my conclusion. I'm going to give you three reasons why I think you should pay attention to what Elihu has to say. The first one is that God doesn't judge him. God very clearly steps out into this conversation and he says Job's three friends are wrong. But he doesn't say anything about Elihu. So because God doesn't say anything negative about Elihu, we have to conclude that what Elihu says is not anything God feels in need to judge. Because he's clarifying everything at that time and he doesn't say anything about Elihu. And I think God's silence speaks more to Elihu's trustworthiness than anything else. But there's two other reasons. The second reason is that Job never responds to Elihu. In the previous chapters, there's all this debate. The friends say something, Job says something. The friends say something, Job says something. The friends say something, Job says lots of somethings. But when Elihu talks, Job doesn't say anything. In fact, the last verse before Elihu talks is literally the phrase, thus the words of Job are ended. He doesn't say anything else of significance. Now, when God shows up, Job does respond to God, but that's interesting and we'll cover that next week. But Elihu never gets a response from Job. In other words, Job's mouth is shut. He doesn't have anything to say to Elihu. Maybe Elihu is getting through to him. And yes, that's the third point. The third point is that Job actually follows Elihu's advice. What Elihu is about to tell Job, Job actually does. When God shows up in the end of the book, Job follows Elihu's advice. Okay, so I think there's reasons for us to trust what Elihu has to say. The next thing that we have to do is just simply address where Job is at this moment in time. Because up until this point, he has been defending his honor and his innocence and his blamelessness. But there's, uh, there's some things left over that I think we need to address. So let's put that next slide up. The blank was follows. And now let's go to the next verse after that. This is Job talking about where he is right now. This is his summary chapter. The last couple of chapters here, uh, Job 29 and 30, uh, are like Job's summary chapter of everything that's going on through 31. Um, he says, people listen to me expectantly, waiting in silence for my counsel. After I'd spoken, they spoke no more. My words fell gently on their ears, but now they mock me. Men younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to put with my sheepdogs. In other words, these are guys whose fathers aren't worth my time, and now these children are mocking me. Job is like, I have fallen way too far. 
way too far. Let's go on to the next one. Job then says, in his great power, God becomes like clothing to me. He binds me like the neck of my garment. He throws me into the mud and I'm reduced to dust and ashes. I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer. Keep going. He says, I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly. With the might of your hand, you attack me. Yet when I hoped for good, evil came. When I looked for light, then came darkness. And at this point, Job is beginning to shift. See, he's been in a debate with his friends for this entire time, for a long time. And something that happens in your heart when you are in a debate is that the more you successfully respond to the people you're debating, the less you're concerned about the topic and the more you're concerned about yourself. Because as Job is debating his friends, he's like, nope, that's wrong, 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 I'm right, I'm right, I'm right, I'm good. And see... I think what's happening here in Job is that he has reached the end of his rope and the label at the end of his rope is a word that says pride. That Job has gotten to the end and yes, he was blameless when this whole thing started. And yes, the things he said about God have been true. God affirms that at the end. But there's one other thing that is going on that we're pretty clear on when God starts talking. We'll see it next week. But that Job has had something happen in his heart through this journey. And the thing that happened in his heart is that he has become just a little bit closer to the line that we would call arrogance. Just a little bit closer to pride. And in the process, he right now taunts God. He says, okay, God, let's have it out. This is it. And all of chapter 31 is Job's taunt to God. Job says to God, if I had done any of these bad things, then you would have the right to judge me. But I haven't, so you don't. What are you going to say about that? And he lists off 14 different sins. And he says, here are these 14 different sins, and I haven't done any of them. I'm just going to show you one of them. This is what Job says. He says, if I had, let's put that up on the, on the next slide the next Bible. There it is. If I had raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing that I had influence in court, then let my arm fall off from the shoulder. Let it be broken off at the joint. What he says is he says, listen, if I was in court and I raised my hand against someone else, then may my arm just fall off right then. He's like, God, if I've done something with my arm, take it off. If I haven't done something with my arm, then forget this whole abuse situation you're doing to me, God. He lists off all these things, and it's like this. He says, if I've done this bad thing, then God, you should punish me this way. And he's basically taking an oath. He says, God, if you have something against me, tell me what it is. In fact, that's the climax of his final words. I'll put it up on the screen. It says this, Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. We think he might have actually had a document that he had written that he'd prepared, and he now signs it. He says, I sign my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Surely I would wear it on my shoulder. I would put it on like a crown. He says, let's keep going. He says, I would... Give him an account of my every step. I would present it to him as to a ruler. 
the words of Job are ended. He ends chapter 31 with a taunt. And he says, God, here is my oath. If you have an accusation against me, write it down, give it to me, I'll make it into a hat. And I will wear it everywhere, and everyone will see me wearing your accusation against me. But if you're not going to do that, God, then just drop it. That's basically what he said. And he's challenging God. He stomps his feet. He folds his arms. The words of Job are ended. The very next thing Job says will be interesting. But we get that next week. Today, we see what happens between Job and God. And it's this guy who shows up, Elihu. And he talks longer than the other guys talk. And he is not as good with his words as the other guys. But what he says is amazing. There are three lessons he tries to teach Job, and there are two lessons that I want to teach you. Five things. Here we go. Let's take a look at it. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to put the reference up on the screen uh, so that I want you to actually have your eyes on the passage as we're looking at it. Job 32, verses 1 through 12. So these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But Elihu, son of Barakel the Buzite, of the family of Ram, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. He was also angry with the three friends because they had found no way to refute Job and yet had condemned him. Now Elihu had waited before speaking to Job because they were older than he. But when he saw that the three men had nothing more to say, his anger was aroused. So Elihu, son of Barakel the Buzite, says, I am young in years and you are old. That's why I was fearful, not daring to tell you what I know. I thought age should speak, advanced years should teach wisdom. But it's the spirit in a person, the breath of the Almighty that gives them understanding. It's not the old who are wise, not only the aged who are who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. I too will tell you what I know. I waited while you spoke. I listened to your reasoning. While you were searching for words, I gave you my full attention. But not one of you has proved Job wrong. None of you has answered his arguments. In other words, he's looking at the three guys and he says, y'all are fools. And he's looking at Job and he's like, huh? How can these guys not be able to answer Job? Job is accusing God of doing wrong. And Elihu is like, how dare you? How dare you? These guys are just trying to be like, well, maybe you sinned, Job. Maybe you did something wrong. Just apologize to God and he'll make it better. And Elihu's standing in the middle and he's like, that's a bad answer. And Job, your stuff is bad. I'm just going to yell at y'all. And so he jumps into the mix and he begins to tell them what he thinks. Let's go to the next one. It's chapter 33, beginning in verse 8 through 12. He says this, but you have said, and now he's talking directly to Job. You have said, Job, in my hearing, I heard the very words, I'm pure. I've done no wrong. I'm clean and free from sin. Yet God has found fault with me. He considers me his enemy. He fastens my feet in shackles. He keeps close watch on all my paths. But I tell you, in this, you are not right. For God is greater than any mortal. This is the foundational principle of everything that Elihu's about to say. Elihu says, Job, You're a whiner. And God is God. 
Job, I've heard you claim that you're pure. I've heard you claim that you're blameless. I've heard you claim that you are innocent of all sorts of wrongdoings. And gee, Job, maybe you are. I'm not here to determine whether or not you did any particular kind of sin. I just know I know God and you're not God. And whatever it is that you think you are, you aren't that. God is above every mortal. And so we should start there, Job. Let's just start with this idea that you ain't God. Let's just start with this idea that he's above you. And let's see where that takes us. And then he begins, really, his main points. He gives Job four speeches. And in these four speeches, I'm summarizing them down to three main statements and then two lessons for us to really key in on. But the first thing, Job chapter 33, verse 13. Take a look at this. Verse 13, Elihu says to Job, why do you complain to him that he responds to no one's words? Job's been complaining. He's like, why doesn't God answer me? I'm talking to God, but God's not talking back to me. Why is that happening? And Elihu is like, what do you mean? What do you mean God doesn't talk? Yes, God talks. And he gives Job three ways that God talks. He says, God talks to people in dreams. He says, God talks to people by whispering terrors into their heart. In other words, fears that they have. Dreams that they have, fears that they have, and also suffering. Uh, Take a look at this verse uh, right here, verse 19. He says, someone may be chastened on a bed of pain with constant distress in their bones so that their body finds food repulsive and their soul loathes the choicest meal. Well, that's Job. He's in exactly that position. And Elihu says these sorts of things happen to people, but he says they happen to people specifically because that's how God talks. Elihu says God speaks to you through your dreams, through your fears, and even through sufferings because, take a look at verse 17, God wants to turn them from wrongdoing and keep them from pride, to preserve them from the pit, their lives from perishing by the sword. See, here's the deal. God looks at people and he sees the path they're on. And he lets them walk that path. But sometimes God recognizes that that path is going to lead to a bad place. It's going to lead to a pit. It's going to lead to death. It's going to lead to some sort of suffering. And at that moment, God steps in. He says, we're going to redirect. Sometimes he whispers a fear. Don't go that direction. Sometimes he gives a dream. That's probably a bad idea. Sometimes he brings some suffering to just sort of stop us in our tracks. You know what I mean. When you hit those times of hardship, you just sort of stop. You're just there. And it's in that moment that Elihu is trying to say to Job, listen, it doesn't matter what you have done. There's a God who sees where you're going. And he might step in now to prevent you from going there. This is the way I want you to write it down. Suffering is an opportunity for grace. Suffering is an opportunity for God to step into your life and prevent something bad. That's what Elihu is saying. He's not saying God is being unfair and he's not saying God is transactional. No, he's doing something completely different. He says God is loving you with the suffering. 
In fact, there's this very weird little thing that Elihu says here in the middle that I I just need to draw your attention to because it's so fascinating. So fascinating. He says in uh, um, verse 23, he talks about the person who is close to death. Verse 22 was the person who's drawing near to death. And in verse 23, he talks about if that person who is near death has an angel at their side, a messenger, one out of a thousand, sent to tell them how to be upright, And he is gracious to that person and says to God, spare them from going down to the pit. I've found a ransom for them. Let their flesh be renewed like a child's. Let them be restored as in the days of their youth. Then that person can pray to God and find favor with him. They will see God's face and shout for joy. He will restore them to full well-being. Elihu says, listen. You might be going down a bad path and God might bring some hardship into your life. You might even get close to death. But guess what? If, if the person who is getting close to death has an angel on their side, no, not an angel, a messenger from God, no, a one in a thousand kind of being. If the person has a one in a thousand kind of being on their side, who can then teach them the right way to go, but also stand before the Father in heaven and say, no, I've found a ransom for this person. If that happens, then this person gets spared from death. This person can pray to God and enter into a relationship with God and shout for joy. See, it's one thing for suffering to be an act of grace to keep me away from the pit. It's another thing for suffering to give me a a relationship with someone who is going to pay a ransom for me, who can bring me into fellowship with the Father himself so I can be in a relationship with God, so I can experience joy. Do you realize that sometimes God God brings suffering into my life because I'm not yet experiencing my joy? And the way he needs to derail me off of my path towards my path of joy is by doing something right here. Elihu says suffering is an opportunity for grace. Uh, The next thing that Elihu tries to say, let's look at it in verse chapter, uh, chapter 34, beginning in verse 10. Elihu says, So listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do evil from the Almighty to do wrong. He repays everyone for what they've done. He brings on them what their conduct deserves. And at this point, you might want to pause and you're like, ah, Elihu, you're sounding just like those three friends of Job. You know, God always punishes the wicked and he always blesses the good people. Keep reading. Elihu has a trick. He's got a, he's got a different angle on this same thing. He says, it's unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. And skip ahead to verse 18. Is God not the one who says to kings, you're worthless, and to nobles, you're wicked, who shows no partiality to princes and does not favor the rich over the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. They die in an instant. In the middle of the night, the people are shaken and they pass away. The mighty are removed without human hand. This is what Elihu says. See, see, before the three friends were saying, God punishes the wicked and he blesses the righteous. And so if you're bad, God is going to bring bad things into your life. And if you're you're good, God is going to bring good things into your life. And Elihu says, no, that's not the way it works. Elihu says, God always judges. He always judges. But when he judges a wicked person, they die. 
did you, did you see that? He says, they die in an instant, verse 20. They die in an instant in the middle of the night. See, what Elihu is trying to say is that everything up until the point where the person is killed, everything up until that point is God showing them grace. The wicked person, when God judges them, it's done. It's instantaneous. It's immediate. It's all the way. It's irreversible. When God judges someone, it's that. And everything up until that point is grace. See, here's the deal. You might be experiencing some suffering in your life that is the direct cause of some wicked person. And you might be asking the question, why does God allow this to happen in my life? It's because God is allowing grace to happen in their life. And would you be surprised if you heard a story about a God who, for whatever reason, uses suffering in one person's life to bring about grace in another person's life? Maybe a one in a million kind of character who would be willing to come and experience a suffering that other people could experience grace as a result. Uh, Ellie, who is just trying to paint this picture of a God who, yeah, he judges. It's just you just don't understand his judgment. When his judgment happens, it's, it's done. Everything up until that point is grace. Suffering is the result of grace. Sometimes suffering happens in my life because God is being gracious to someone else. And that's just the way it works. But then Elihu gives us a third thing. And this third thing is even, even bigger. In chapter 35, take a look at this. 35, beginning in verse 4. He says, I would like to reply to you and to your friends with you. Look up at the heavens and see. Gaze at the clouds so high above you. If you sin, how does that affect him? If your sins are many, what does that do to him? If you're righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness only affects humans like yourself, and your righteousness only other people. He says this, listen, just look at the clouds. Can your sins affect the clouds? No. Can your righteousness affect the clouds? No. How much more God for crying out loud? Do you really believe that the things that you do bother him? Elihu is like, listen, you, you have such a small view of God. You think God is like all worried and uptight about, oh, you're doing good things and so I'm going to do good things to you. And oh, you're doing bad things, I'm going to do bad things to you. You think God is all uptight and worried about this stuff. No, God isn't affected by you at all. Let me tell you the secret about God, he says. God is above you. God is above that. God is above all the things. And if he has a relationship with you, it is not because you did something right, nor is it because you did something bad. You can't earn favor with God, nor can you really ruin it, because 100% of God's interaction with you is grace. Comes from a God who chooses to relate, and everything with God is grace. It's not just that, you know, suffering I can find some grace in the midst of, it's that everything that God is doing in this world is fundamentally about grace. And so if God is going to bring some grace into this world and sometimes I have to face some suffering, 
Or if sometimes God is bringing some grace into my life as a result of some suffering, that's just how God is going to work because everything with him is grace. It's such a weird thing for us to encounter some sort of hardship and then for us to sort of blame God as if God is being mean to us like Job is doing. God is okay taking responsibility for human suffering. Don't get me wrong. He takes responsibility for it because he's a God who is working a plan of grace. I want to give you two final things. And these verses I'm just going to put up on the screen so we can all see them at the same time in the same way. Elihu says, but those who suffer, he delivers in their suffering. He speaks to them in their affliction. He is wooing you from the jaws of distress to a spacious place, free from restriction, to the comfort of your table, laden with choice food. There is a God who has something for you. And he is wooing you. He is guiding you. He is pulling you. He is leading you. He is trying to draw you towards it. But there's a suffering at the start of it. There's an affliction at the start of it. And God isn't trying to bring you through their suffering. God isn't trying to bring you out of the suffering. God is trying to meet the sufferer in the suffering. God delivers sufferers not through it, not out of it, not around it, in it. See, his plan is to find you where you are, meet you there, and be with you. We want God to just rescue us. God wants something better. He wants relationship. Look at this next verse. Elihu's, one of the most beautiful things he says, he says, how great is our God beyond our understanding. The number of his years is past finding out. His thunder announces the coming storm. Even the cattle make known its approach. The Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power. In his justice and great righteousness, he does not oppress See, he's trying to say, God's job isn't to try to put you down. God's job isn't try to press you down. God's job isn't trying to keep you somewhere low. He's not trying to oppress you or wound you or hurt you. What God is doing is he's trying to lift you because he is high and lifted up. And if he's going to have you in relationship with him, his act of grace always has to come down to lift you. He's not trying to oppress you, but nevertheless, he is beyond our reach. You see, what Elihu is trying to say to Job at the end here is he's trying to say, Job, is there anything in the world, anything in the world that is proper for you to do in relationship to God other than worship? See, he just says, Job, listen. The only proper response is worship. Sure, your complaining has been accurate. Sure, you were blameless at the beginning of this whole process. Sure, you have defended your integrity, and God, he probably will defend your integrity too. I don't know. I haven't read the end of the book yet. But Job, guess what? Job, guess what? It doesn't matter about your integrity. 
Nothing that you are is anywhere near who he is. Nothing that you are is anywhere close to him. And so is the proper response of a human being to complain, to taunt, to argue, to plead, to beg, or to worship. And so to help you worship, I want to leave you with one final idea, one final verse. This is the verse that we already looked at, but I just want to share it with you again. Elihu talks about God speaking to people in their suffering, and he says, their flesh wastes away to nothing, and their bones once hidden now stick out. They draw near to the pit and their life to the messengers of death. Yet, if there's an angel at their side, a messenger, one out of a thousand, sent them to tell them how to be upright. And he is gracious to that person and says to God, spare them from going down to the pit. I've found a ransom for them. Let their flesh be renewed like a child's. Let them be restored as in the days of their youth. Then that person can pray to God and find favor with him. They will see God's face and shout for joy. He will restore them to full well-being and they will go to others and say, I have sinned. I have perverted what is right but I did not get what I deserved. What we're about to do is we're about to celebrate communion with each other, which is all about this, all about a one in a million kind of creature, the Son of God himself, coming to earth to teach us how to be upright, but more than that, to pay a ransom that we might be saved. And at the end, we say, I have sinned but I did not get what I deserved. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.